Well, take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Proverbs. If you don't have a Bible or a Bible app on your electronic device, I invite you to take a Bible from the pew in front of you. You can turn to page 531. You're going to need the scripture open this morning in your lap, looking at it in order to follow along and understand all that the Lord would say to us from his word. We have been now, this is the fourth week in a summer study through the book of Proverbs. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 7 in a message I've entitled, Wisdom and Wandering Eyes. Now, to set the stage for this passage, let me ask you a question. Does God care what two consenting adults do in private? Does God care what happens behind closed doors? I mean, after all, he's way up there. We're way down here. How much difference does this aspect of our lives really matter to the creator and sustainer of the universe anyway. Is, doesn't God have much bigger things to be worried about than our sexuality? Well, I'll get back to that question in a minute, but here's another question. Why are we as a human race so obsessed with sex? It's everywhere. <laughs> you can't escape it. It's on every billboard. It's in every advertisement. It's in every movie. It's even in the suggested reading materials for kindergartners and second graders that they take home. Why are we as a society obsessed with sex? Why are we overwhelmed and bombarded with innuendos and images? Well, fundamentally, don't miss this, God created us as sexual beings. That's how he created us. In the very beginning, as God describes in his word, Genesis chapter 1, how he created us, notice what verse 27 says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The very first description of humankind in the Bible reveals that we are sexual beings. We have sexuality. We have gender, we have maleness and femaleness, manness and womanness. Fundamentally, we are sexual beings. He's knitted into his creative work. In fact, in the perfection and in the innocence of the Garden of Eden, before sin ever entered the picture, what was the first command given to these sexual creatures? Notice verse 28 of the same chapter. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean? Make babies. <laughs> we know where babies come from, right? The first command from God was to make babies. The first description of humankind is a sexual, human sexuality description. God created it. God designed it for his good and for our good for his glory. Here's where I want us to begin as we consider this subject from the book of Proverbs is that God created human sexuality. And watch this. God created romance. God created romance to exist between men and women. 
Romance is not a product of millions of years of evolution, some type of mechanical system that has evolved within humanity so that we will sustain the species. No. God created romance. God created the thrill of romance. Why? Because ultimately reality is not cold and dark and blank. Ultimate reality is thrilling. Ultimate reality is profound. Ultimate reality is not this no feeling, no emotion, no meaning. No, ultimate reality is exciting. And God has given us sexuality. God has given us romance and a full expression of these things to be enjoyed within marriage as he designed it. In fact, notice this next slide. Human sexuality expressed within our finite lives points us to something that is infinite. Don't miss that. God who has designed us as human beings, as sexual creatures, within our finite lives has given us this to point us to something that is infinite. And this is really the summary of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, we have the most lengthy, extensive teaching on God's gift of marriage and what marriage is for and how married partners are to relate. And in the summary and conclusion of that instruction, notice what Paul says. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why did God give humanity marriage? Why did God make us sexual creatures? It is a profound mystery. And Paul says the reason he did it is he's pointing to the consummation of all things. He's pointing to the final glory of eternity that we get to enjoy relationship and fellowship with our Savior Jesus forever. This is ultimate reality. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus and His bride, the church through the ages. And so this is why God is concerned with our sex lives. This is why the Bible over and over and over again gives us instructions, gives us commands about human sexuality. Romance is intended to be a portrayal of the glory of God we worship. And this specific chapter of Proverbs that we're going to be studying today is one of many scriptures in the inspired text of the Bible that teaches on aspects of human sexuality. Now, this proverb, before we read it, let me give it a little setup. This is unlike any other proverb in the 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs. This is a narrative. It's a story. The inspired writer, Solomon, is writing a story to give information and insight and wisdom to his son, and by extension, to give wisdom and insight to us. So we're going to read the whole chapter. That's why I said you need your Bible open. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 27. This is the Word of God. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live 
Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Verse 6, for at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen, I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he'll come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This chapter, again, was written by a father to a son, a young man. It is a specific story, a narrative about adultery, even more specifically about this gullible, cotton-headed nitty muggins (laughs) who gets caught up in her seducing. Now, to be sure, this is an extreme and a very specific situation one in which a very small percentage of people have experienced. In fact, I would guess none of us have experienced anything like what he describes here. I know I haven't. No woman's ever grabbed me on the street and given me a kiss unasked for, right? Not happened to me. So we can see this is a very foreign thing to our experience. So does this chapter have any application in our lives? Why study it? if we'd have never experienced this kind of a thing? Well, I would argue that it does have great application to our lives. Reason being, while this does give a concrete example of an adulterous situation, it illustrates general principles regarding adultery, regarding sexual immorality, and these principles apply to all of us. In fact, I would remind you of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapter 5. He put it like this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I'm not a Catholic priest, so I don't hear your personal confessions, but I don't have to hear your personal confessions to know that every one of you are tagged with that passage. 
every single one of us, are guilty of lustful thought towards someone else. Therefore, every single one of us are guilty, according to Jesus, not Troy, of adultery. We're guilty of it in our heart, in our minds. Though this is an extreme picture, it gives a pattern for how people are led into all kinds of immorality. It also portrays the painful consequences that follow. So it's a stern warning for us. Now, regardless of what your particular struggle may be, whether it's wandering eyes, as my title mentions, or maybe beyond that, maybe it's looking at images on the computer or on your phone, maybe it's thinking any inappropriate thoughts, maybe it's reading provocative material, perhaps it's the temptation of getting emotionally involved with a coworker, or worse, even engaging in physical relationships with, with people or someone outside of the marriage covenant. Whatever it is, we all struggle. We all battle immorality in many diverse ways. And regardless of how we struggle, what this proverb is teaching us is that it is all dangerous, according to God's design. So God's given us this proverb to warn us, to protect us. And really, there are two profound realities that this proverb communicates to us to give us insight into walking in truth. The first one is this. It's just that. Pursue the truth of God. Pursue, the author says, the truth of God. This principle comes in the introduction of the Proverbs in verses 1 through 5. In the first five verses, Solomon gives multiple synonyms for the Bible, for Scripture, for the Word of God. Notice again verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, he uses the word words to describe the Bible, and he also uses the word commandments. Then again in verse 2, he uses the word commandments again and then uses the word teaching. Then in verse 4, he refers to it as wisdom and insight. All of these different words are synonyms for Scripture, synonyms for the truth of God, the word of God. In a nutshell, what these five verses are teaching us is this. Look at this next slide. The best defense against immorality is a good offense through the word of God. The best defense against immorality is is a good offense through the Word of God. Now, some of you have heard that phrase before, the best defense is a good offense. Or maybe you've heard the reverse of that. Where does that come from? Did some football coach think of that? No, they're not smart enough. I'm just kidding. Where did this phrase, the best defense is a good offense, come from? It actually came from our first president, George Washington. In a letter dated June 25th, 1799, he wrote these words, offensive operations oftentimes is the surest, if not the only, means of defense. Now, President Washington was talking about something militarily. The way you can defend your home turf is by having offensive operations on the enemy's turf. Because they're preoccupied with defending their turf, they don't have the resources or the capacity to come and attack your turf. The best off defense is often a good offense. And this is exactly the truth here with regard to the word. The best offense or defense, excuse me, against immorality is to have an offense in the word of God. In other words, in order to have intimacy 
or to avoid intimacy with immorality, we must have an intimacy with the Scripture. Let me say that again. In order to avoid intimacy with immorality, we must have intimacy with the Word of God. Notice again verse 4 of our focal passage. He says, Say to wisdom, again a synonym for the Bible, You are my sister. Call insight, another synonym for the Bible, your intimate friend. Now the word sister here, he's not talking about your biological sister. When Solomon uses the term sister, he's actually referring to his lover, his wife. Notice what he says in Song of Solomon chapter 4. Same word. He says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Solomon says, if you want to stay away from the intimacy of immorality, have intimacy with the Scripture. Have intimacy with the truth. The best defense against immorality is an offense through the Word of God. And just how do we do that? How do we pursue intimacy with the Word of God as an intimate friend? How do we have a closeness with the Scripture? Well, Solomon tells us. He uses several verbs in verses 1 through 3 to describe our engagement with the Bible. He says, my son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now this word keep that's used several times here, the Hebrew word is shamar. If you're a man who's been to some of our men's breakfasts, hopefully you remember this word. It's given to us in the first time in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the mandate given to men and God took the man and put him in the garden to do two things. What were they? Work and keep. Work means provide. Keep means protect. Guard. Watch over. Keep the truth. Guard the truth with your life. In fact, this same word for keep, shamar, is used in uh, the very familiar passage in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about the Bible. In verse 9, it's particularly relevant to this subject of sexual purity. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it, by keeping it, by protecting it. How? According to your word. He also uses this word treasure in our focal text in Psalm 119. Look at Psalm 119, verse 11. Often this verse is, word is translated as hidden or stored up. I have stored up treasured, hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So how do you do this? How do you guard? How do you treasure? How do you protect? How do you hide God's word? Well, he tells us again in verse 3, the discipline of memorization. Look again at verse 3. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. We might say, put a post-it note on your mirror. Leave yourself a voice memo of the Scripture. Take the discipline of memorization. Because here's what happens. When we put it in our minds, it doesn't take long before it takes root in our hearts. 
As we take the Scripture, the living Word of God, and we memorize it, it will take root in our hearts. In fact, look at this next slide. External discipline with the Word will fuel internal delight in the Word. It's discipline, yes, to bind them on your fingers, to write it on your heart, to put a post-it note in your car, to leave yourself a voice memo, to spend some time memorizing the Word. It takes discipline, but when we discipline ourselves regarding the Word, to read it, to memorize it, to study it, it will fuel this internal delight, and it will fuel obedience to God. You see, the whole issue with sexual immorality it's a heart issue. This is a hot topic in our society today. Again, I didn't plan this sermon after I heard about the consequence of the Supreme Court decision. I planned this months ago to preach on this passage this Sunday. But this is the critical question. For us, it's a critical question for our culture. What satisfies your heart? What satisfies your heart? Where do you find fulfillment? Is it God, or is it intimacy with the world? In order to stay away from the intimacy with the forbidden woman, as Father Solomon says, get intimate with the truth. Get intimate with the Word. And this reality, whether you recognize it or not, we are so inundated with the world's information and images, we must, we must diligently counterform our souls and our hearts to truth regularly. Drift is so easy because we're bombarded with it. Friends, that's why we gather for worship every Sunday. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's why we encourage one another to be in small groups, to read the Bible, to pray together so that these habits will shape our hearts and form our love for God. This is important for our children. Parents, are you forming the Word of God in your children's lives regularly, habitually, systematically? The world is seeking to shape our children at every turn, and we must combat that with truth. So the best defense is a good offense. We do that by pursuing the truth. That's the first principle in this proverb. Second principle is this. Avoid the trap of immorality. The wise father knows his son needs more than just a command to keep the words of wisdom. He knows he needs some practical application, a, a where the rubber meets the road illustration. So Solomon creates this story. He writes this story under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit, a rather graphic and evocative story, but a story nonetheless he uses to teach some principles and tr some truths. And he presents this story really in three scenes. I'm going to go and tell you what the three scenes are up front as we go through it. He looks, he's hooked, he's cooked. That's it. He looks, He's hooked, he's cooked, stick a fork in him, he's done. Let's consider him together. First, he looks for corruption. He looks for corruption. Again, the man in Solomon's story, he goes out looking for trouble. He's going out looking for something that is corrupting to his soul. Notice again how he describes it beginning in verse 6. Now, for at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, 
a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Remember, the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. We're studying it so that we might wise up. And he says, I looked out the window and I saw a young man lacking sense. That's the contrast. This book is for our wisdom, for our instruction. I saw a young man. He had no sense. He was foolish. What demonstrates his foolishness, his folly? Well, one, where he's walking. He's passing along a place where he knows she's going to be. He's walking along her corner. He's going down the road towards her house. He's looking for trouble. It's not just where he's walking. He's in the wrong place, but he's doing it at the wrong time. It's amazing, verse 9 uses four different words to describe the wrong time. Twilight, evening, the time of night, and darkness. Here's what we need to know. Darkness is the playground of sin. Darkness is the petri dish where evil flourishes. It's true. In the darkness, not in the light. Because in the light, it's open. It's visible. It's seen. We're more aware. There's a lack of accountability in the dark. Back in my youth pastor days, a decade and a half ago, when I would give talks to my youth groups on dating according to the Bible, I would always repeat this mantra. There were three rules I would tell people who are in dating relationships that they should follow if you want to follow the Bible in your dating relationships. I would say this. If you ever find yourself alone with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and this doesn't just apply to teenagers, it applies to every person who's not married. If you're ever alone, three rules to follow. You want to hear them? Number one, keep every button buttoned. Number two, keep every zipper zipped. Number three, keep every light on. As soon as you start turning lamps off, as soon as you turn the light overhead off, you start playing that soothing music. In the dark is the Petri dish for immorality. The reason I say this victim is looking for trouble because he's put himself in the path of trouble and he's walking in the dark at the time of trouble. Friend, if your life is lived or any part of your life is lived in secret, if there's parts of your life that people don't have access to, you are looking for trouble. Without accountability, there is trouble lurking. So here's some application for us. What area of your life do you need to shine some light? What area of your light of your life are you keeping in the dark? Are you keeping secret? Do you need an accountability partner? Do you need an internet filter? Do you need some reporting software that reports to a friend the websites and the things that you go to on your phone? In fact, the Apostle John put it like this in his first epistle. He said, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Friends, walking in secrecy, walking in darkness is looking for trouble. 
That's the first scene we see. He looks. Number two, he's hooked. He's hooked by seduction. The seductress is seeking a victim that she can hook. Notice how she does this in verses 10 through 12. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. Friends, to think that there are not, there are not loud voices out there seeking to seduce, seduce us to immorality, that's naive. They are everywhere. Sometimes they're on a billboard. Sometimes they're on the internet. Sometimes they're in magazine covers. Sometimes they're in romance novels. Sometimes they're just in casual conversations with a coworker or bad advice from a friend. The voices are out there, and we need to know what those voices sound like in order to stay away. And here's the thing. For the moment, seduction, by its very nature, feels really good. It feels really good to be seduced by someone else. It's pleasing to our ears. It's pleasant to our eyes. But it always, without fail, leads to destruction. The text says she's dressed as a prostitute. I'm sure all of you had an image that came to your mind whenever you read that. We know what he means. And just another aside, point of application, how do you dress? How do your children dress? What are you trying to communicate with your wardrobe? Seduction, it looks good. It looks pleasing. It also feels good. Look at verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him. (laughs) That feels good. In verse 18, it says that she's going to offer his bed to her and says, let us make our fill of love until the morning. What's the mantra of our day? If it feels good, do it. Follow your feelings. Do what feels good. Immorality may, in fact, feel good and look good, but it doesn't offer full disclosure. But not only does seduction look good and feel good, it also sounds good. This may be the most important feature of this passage, of this narrative. Other than the initial kiss, everything else about this seductress is done with her words. What she says. Her words appeal to this dopey dummy's ego. Look at verse 15. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. I have found you. It's all about you, buddy. By the way, what was your name? These are the kind of words that seduction uses for both men and women. Where have you been all my life? You understand me so much better than my husband does. You're so good looking. Have I told you lately I love the way you dress? You make me laugh. The seduction of words is so powerful because all of us want to feel desirable, right? All of us like that to be desired by someone else. In fact, look at verse 21. 
With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Another thing she does with her words is to tell the man, this is a no-risk situation. No risk involved here. Look at verse 19 and 20. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he'll come home, maybe in about two weeks. You don't have to worry about him bumping in with a gun and taking you out. He's gone. This is no risk, indulgent pleasure. It sure does sound familiar. Sounds like the no risk, indulgent pleasure the serpent offered to Adam and Eve. You shall not surely die. In fact, she says here, it's safe. No risk. It's all in secret. Nobody will ever know. In fact, the secrecy of adultery is one of the most thrilling things about adultery. It's one of the most addictive things about immorality. But secrecy and lies will eventually eat away at your soul. And we all know that our true character is really who we are when nobody else is looking. Looks good, feels good, sounds good, but there's not a full disclosure. But I have to wonder, before we get to this last point, what's the backstory on this woman? How, how did she get to this place? She's married. What is she doing out on the street trying to seduce random men? I don't think I'm reading too much into this, when I say her relational tank is empty, her emotional needs are not being met by her husband. He's gone. He's absent. She is not happily married. My point is this. Healthy relationships within marriage are a key to moral purity. Could it be that she's looking for love in all the wrong places because she does not have love in the one place where it ought to be, at home? I don't want to make excuses for her. It's sin. It's evil. But it could explain some of the reason why she's doing what she's doing. See, here's the thing. Listen, adultery doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are precipitating circumstances and conditions. Husbands, are you present in your wives' lives? Are you meeting her relational needs, her emotional needs, her spiritual needs, so she doesn't long for them to be met somewhere else? Wives, are you attending to your husband's needs? Is your husband respected at home? Does your husband hear you say, you're the man of my dreams. I love you. You're exactly the kind of man I need in my life. Are his physical needs being met at home? A healthy relationship with your spouse will be a powerful weapon to guard against immorality. Relationship is the key. Not just for married folks, for single folks too. We got single folks in our church. I don't want to just talk to married people. 
Do you have healthy relationships with your family? Do you have healthy relationships with friends who are pursuing Christ, with your church community? Purity is hardest for those who live in a relational desert. So in this story, the father paints for his son. He looks, he's hooked, and finally, he's cooked. Cooked in destruction. It's over. Stick a fork in him. Look at verses 22 and 23. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Again, seduction never discloses the full consequences and the devastating results of its immorality. But just as the seduction is real and palpable, so are the consequences of it real, the dangers. It's a matter of life and death. Now, when Proverbs speaks of life and death, it is speaking about literally life and death situations, but it's also speaking about uh, qualitatively life versus death. We were meant to live abundant lives. We were meant to live lives that are physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually alive according to God's ways. But when we give in to seduction, when we follow the ways of immorality, we will forfeit the very abundant life we've been called to walk in. These are the consequences. The father in Proverbs 7 is trying to motivate his son. Not just tell him, this is right, this is wrong, you do what's right, don't do what's wrong. He's trying to motivate him by showing him, in reality, this is what can happen. These are the deadly consequences. The momentary pleasure of immorality will be overwhelmed by the pain of its consequences. Physical consequences, yes, but also quality of life consequences. Friends, in, in our society, in our culture over the last 50 years, as we have drifted away from God's design of God's world with regard to sexual preference or sexual morality, we have seen this erosion happen, and we have seen a culture of death. This is where abortion has come from, sexual immorality. Think about it. How many homes, how many children have been wrecked by adultery? How many churches have been wounded because of the moral failure of a leader, a pastor? How many hearts have been forever scarred and shamed because of physical activity outside of marriage? How many women have been abused and assaulted? How many babies have been aborted on the heels of immorality? How many children today are being born into fatherless homes? Immorality leads to destruction. And again, this is how the chapter concludes. Look again at the last four verses. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers 
of death. Do you remember how I began this message? I began with a question. Does God really care about what happens behind closed doors? <laughs> Sorry. Does he care what happens between two consenting adults? If our hearts are turned towards immorality, then they're not turned towards God. And only God and his ways leads to life. The profound mystery of romance, the profound beauty of marriage, of human sexuality, it is pointing to something much greater and grander. It's pointing to the consummation of all things and eternity with Jesus. The Lamb of God with his bride. Friends, this is why God is concerned with what happens behind closed doors. This is why, what, why God is concerned with every detail of our lives. Human sexuality matters to God because it is intended to portray the glory of God and the glory of eternity with Jesus. Therefore, friends, we must develop healthy patterns, healthy habits. We must ask that God would form our hearts to his heart, that we would love what he loves, that we would hate what he hates. We must pursue intimacy with the word and memorization and application. And thankfully, we have a God who performs the miracle of spiritual heart surgery. He changes our hearts. He brings us from death to life. All of us have committed a sin of sexual immorality. We're all guilty. Every human that's walked the planet is guilty except one. His name's Jesus. He was tempted in every way that you have been tempted, yet he never sinned. And because Jesus never sinned, he alone had the capacity and the qualifications to be the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. And Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was resurrected on the third day to provide new life for all who trust in him. And friend, if you're like this fool in, in Proverbs 7 who has been seduced by the trap of sin, look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Have a heart transplant done by the power of the Spirit of Jesus. If we believe the gospel, we're forgiven of our immorality. If you're here this morning and the pain of abortion, either one you've participated in or one you encouraged, the guilt is overwhelming. There's forgiveness in Jesus, friends. Complete, total forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what God does in Christ? He fills our relational tank so that we can walk in truth. Life and death are before us. Walking in light or walking in darkness are before us. By faith, let us walk in the light and in so doing, portray the glory and the goodness of Jesus to a watching world. And that leads to my last thought. Jesus Christ has loved and redeemed 
a people to be a display of his love to the world. Let's go to him in prayer as we prepare to respond to the scripture.